Hello, and welcome to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. For the past two podcasts, we have been speaking about the impact of a sentence of life without parole for children under the age of 18. Our guest was Abdullah Latif, a man who spent 31 years in prison from the time he was 17. His sentence was life without parole. He credits Marsha Levick and the Juvenile Law Center for his release four years ago. So today, our guest is Marsha Levick. She is co-founder and director of the Juvenile Law Center in Philadelphia, the oldest public interest law firm for children in the United States. It was established in 1975. She co-authored several amicus briefs in recent Supreme Court cases. Each of those cases had a huge impact on children, especially Miller v. Alabama, which ended mandatory life without parole for juveniles, and Montgomery v. Louisiana, which made it possible for children serving life without parole to be eligible, eligible for parole retroactively. Marcia is a graduate of Temple University School of Law. Her awards are many. In 2009, she was named Citizen of the Year by the Philadelphia Inquirer, and in 2013, she was recognized as the lawyer or judge who has done the most to promote the law. I want to quote something Marcia said in a recent article, quote, our justice system is capable of enormous cruelty to children. Let's welcome Marcia Levick to the podcast today. Welcome. Can you expand on that statement? Sadly, yes. Okay. Um, I, I think that cruelty drives a lot of what we do in our justice system. And sometimes when I think about the way that we treat individuals who are incarcerated, um, how we treat them during their period of incarceration, how long we lock people up, it feels like cruelty is the purpose. There is thankfully a great deal of research out there now that I think we can look to that allows us to be smart about our justice policy. And smart justice policy is not guided, uh, certainly not guided by cruelty, but I think more importantly, it's it should be guided by what we know about the capacity for change, the capacity for rehabilitation, the ways in which crime cycles occur. And all of that suggests that we need to do, I believe, a very significant rethink about how we treat individuals who are caught up in our criminal justice system. Absolutely. In your 2016 TED Talk, you used the Pledge of Allegiance to address the concept of justice for all. Is there justice for all, especially children, in our justice system? No, and I think to make that point clear, the first thing that we have to recognize is the racism that pervades our justice system. For both children and adults, the historic racism that really, I think, is at the core of surveillance of communities of color, the degree to which so many more youth of color are arrested, are brought into our justice system, 
are prosecuted, the degree to which they often receive lengthier sentences or dispositions, all of this is documented. So when we think about that promise of injustice for all, we have to recognize it is still elusive. Uh, we search for it. We rightfully continue to seek it. I think it's a good thing that we continue to speak it, but it remains um, something that we have not yet achieved. Right. You established the Juvenile Law Center 45 years ago. What was your motivation to create the center and what, tell us about your mission. Uh, well, we wanted to change the world. <laughs> um, I started Juvenile Law Center with three um, comrades from Juvenile Law uh, from Temple University Law School. We all graduated um, in the mid '70s, and upon our graduation, created Juvenile Law Center. But you know, context is all. We often say we were young people who had come of age in the late '60s and early '70s. We grew up in an environment in which political and social upheaval was the was our daily environment. And we also came of age as professionals. We went through law school, um, fortunately, with the opportunity to be exposed to great civil rights lawyers. Um, the civil rights movement of the 60s was not very far in our rearview mirror and we wanted to be them seriously we saw our decision to open up a public interest law firm for kids as a way of thinking about them as another cohort in american society whose rights were being violated whose rights were not respected whose voices were simply not heard and we wanted to be that mouthpiece for them in a way we wanted to amplify their voices. It's funny to think about that work now um, in the sense that I really believe in the 1970s when we started Juvenile Law Center, it was a little bit about us being there, being able to speak for them. I think today when we think about our engagement with the youth on whose behalf we do our advocacy, um, that it's really much more about really letting them speak for themselves, right? which is interesting, um, but we're still there <laughs> um, and we still have a role to play, but it's much more important that we also hear directly from kids. Yeah. Now, when you established the center, how did you actually begin? What, what was your work at that time? Um, so we started the center uh, out of a doctor's office. <laughs> um, one of our co-founders, husbands, was a cardiologist who had an office in Center City, Philadelphia that he used two mornings a week to do insurance exams. So we had it the other um, four days, so to speak, and uh, it all worked out okay. We, we really saw ourselves in the 1970s as a legal services office. We weren't a storefront because we were on the ninth floor, but we were the equivalent of a kind of storefront legal services office. And our doors were open to any youth who had any interaction with our court system, either through the abuse and neglect, through delinquency, potentially a mental health commitment, um, educational issues, special education issues. We, we were available to take their cases. And uh, 
we had no money. Mm-hmm. We also, as coming out of the 70s, were incredibly idealistic and didn't think we needed money. <laughs> um, so we were sort of doing other jobs part time to kind of pay the rent um, and were, were extremely idealistic about our approach to the work over the course of the next first year or two, we got ultimately started to bring in some uh, grant money first from the federal government. Um, The only federal grant we ever got was probably in our second year of existence. Um, Since then, all of our other grants have been from private foundations and private philanthropy. But, But we really started as a Southeastern Pennsylvania legal services office looking to represent individual kids in any setting or context in which their rights were at issue. Um, We evolved, of course, over the next 45 years to a national public interest law firm that uh, works across the country to primarily focus on opportunities to bring about systemic reform and systemic change. But our roots were were very local and very individual. And did you go after the the children or did they find you? that's a great question. <laughs> I'm trying to, mm-hmm. to think about what can I remember from 45 years ago. Yeah. Um, it, I think it was a bit of both. You know, we we reached out to colleagues who um, were working at agencies that came into contact with youth. Within the public defender's office, there are always conflicts cases. If there are co-defendants, a public defender can't represent both individuals. So we were able to connect with enough folks to um, have them refer individuals to us. Uh, If we heard about something, uh, we were not shy about injecting ourselves into that situation. Um, but it was, um, we, we made it up as we went along. Uh, you know, I can't emphasize enough that we did this immediately following graduation from law school. So uh, we knew nothing. <laughs> I can say that now. We knew nothing. Uh, but, we, but we had passion and we had conviction and it, and it got us to where we are today. And commitment, right? Yes. So, so uh, as you look back, what are you most proud of? And, and what would you say the impact of the Juvenile Law Center has been? I'm most proud of the fact that we're still here. And what I mean by that um, isn't just that we survived, but that we, um, we persevered. We clung to that initial passion and that commitment to do this work. And certainly for the first 10 or 20 years, I think it's fair to say there was an enormous amount of financial instability. The organization is financially very healthy today and has been for for a couple of decades. Um, But we persevered even through that financial instability to continue to do this work. I think that our impact is that over the course of several decades, um, we've seen other organizations that were founded in a similar time period to advocate on behalf of kids that that fell away, um, that didn't survive. And I think that the fact that we're still here has enabled us to, I think, provide a steady and consistent perspective on the rights of children in our justice system and in our child welfare system. 
and to um, constantly remind uh, stakeholders, to remind policymakers, judges, legislators that that we're watching, <laughs> that we're listening, that we will sue them if we think we need to sue them, that we are here to ensure that kids' rights are protected, that they're treated fairly, and that they're treated humanely. Oh, that's great. Um, what are the key issues that still trouble you today after all the years of involvement with juveniles in the in this criminal justice system? Um, that's a great question. And I think I can actually easily answer what they are. One is race. Um, that's the racism that still, I think, afflicts our system. Um, and the second is uh, the, the punitive nature of our system, even within the juvenile justice system itself, that historically and still today, we talk about it as a system that is founded primarily on a principle of rehabilitation. We, we focus too much on um, accountability and punishment for kids. And I think not enough on thinking about uh, the circumstances that lead them to commit crimes, even the most serious crimes, the ways in which their communities are underserved and under-resourced, the specific trauma that many of these kids have experienced, their individual needs and their individual strengths. Um, if, if we focus on that cluster of issues, I think we would be less about punishment and much more able to focus on how to bring these kids back, bring them back into their communities in ways that they can contribute. Right. The, the history of how kids were treated, since you're talking about that, by the courts over 100 years ago is revealing as we compare it to today. Can you speak a little about that? Well, it's 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 night and day, and it's day and day. <laughs> um, it's night and day in the sense that the early juvenile court, the first one was founded in 1899, um, and really up until the mid-1960s, before the U.S. Supreme Court suddenly peered behind the curtain and realized what was going on, is that it was a very closed system that provided virtually no constitutional safeguards to kids. So kids didn't have a right to counsel. Um, they didn't have a right, the very basic rights that we think of for criminal defendants. If we watched one law and order, <laughs> we know that there's all kinds of procedural safeguards that defendants are entitled to. Kids didn't have any of that and nobody knew because the system was correctly closed. We wanted the system to be confidential. We wanted to protect kids from the taint of criminal records and having their involvement in juvenile delinquency exposed to the general public. It was intended to be protective, but there was a huge price, price that kids paid for that. And that was really having no constitutional safeguards. That all changed in the 1960s when the United States Supreme Court heard and decided several cases, which basically extended all of those right to counsel, right to confront and cross-examine witnesses, right to notice of when your hearing is being held and what you're being charged with. Um, all of those sort of very fundamental things that are at the core of our constitutional safeguards were extended to kids during the 1960s. 
That's the day and night part. And that stuff holds true through today. The day and day part is that I think we've also in a way kind of come full circle. The original juvenile court was premised intuitively, not scientifically, but intuitively on a sense that kids are different, that we know that we can look around us even in 1899 and realize that kids were not miniature adults and that the driving force behind creating this separate juvenile court was to get them out of adult prisons, to get them out of adult jails, to get them out of that adult criminal justice system. That has hit some bumps in the road. And particularly during the 1990s, when we were living through the super predator myth and this wrongheaded perception that a generation of teen predators were going to terrorize our communities. And I should say mostly the myth was black and brown teen predators were going to terrorize our communities as we sort of turned the corner of the century. Um, really led to an enormous expansion of uh, the opportunities for trying kids as adults, for example. And so in the 90s really ushered in an era of the most punitive responses to offending by children and youth. That changed again um, in the aughts and uh, over the course of the last 20 years as developmental research came in. Um, and uh, as, as that developmental research taught us something, both about psychological development, simply the, the developmental phases that kids go through in terms of their developmental maturity and immaturity, um, and also the neuroscience that began to inform us about the teen brain and how that is still undergoing development, that reversed a lot of the bad stuff of the 90s and allowed us to think again about the critical ways in which kids differ from adults and to be much more intentional uh, about really focusing on rehabilitation and treatment. So that's the day and day part. Right, right. To kids are different. They really are. Yeah. Now we know that scientifically. Yeah, which, which is certainly uh, so very, very important. But then how does that uh, knowledge translate itself or doesn't it? Have we applied what we have learned about what I call the teen brain? Um, we have um, to some degree. Uh, and I think it's, we're still applying it. We've certainly applied it. Um, if, if we think about um, Abdullah's case mm -hmm. and the hundreds of others like him across the country who had their sentences vacated, their life without parole sentences vacated, and who are, have been able to come home over the course of the last five or six years. Um, that's all because of that research. And that research led the United States Supreme Court in a series of several cases, the ones that you identified in your opening remarks, to really strike the most extreme sentences for children, life without parole and the death penalty. It didn't completely alleviate the extreme sentencing that we still impose on children. Um, and so Abdullah served 31 years before he was released. Um, he could speak about other men and women that he was in prison with who might have been resentenced to 40 or 50 or 60 years 
before they will get out. And for them um, as individuals, for me as a lawyer who represents them, that's, that's not a win. No. That's not a relief from a life without parole sentence. No, it's not. Well, we have actually come to the end of this uh, part of the podcast. And I know you said you would return to talk to us next time. There's so much more to say, and I do appreciate your time, Marcia, today. So I encourage my listeners to tune in next time. We'll be talking to Marcia Levick again. And thank you so much for your time, and thank you for listening. Thank you.